So, how does it feel to be back together today? How long has it been? Gary, I can't remember anything. So you tell me how long it's, it's been. been. Two years, one week, six days. Two years, one week, six days. And 15 minutes. So <laughs> it's great. So um, a couple of people noticed that we're starting, you know, I, when the pandemic started and we went online only, I moved the start of the class a little bit to, to where I would start at noon instead of 11.45. So we're just going to hold to that. So we'll gather and have fun between 11.30 and 12. And the, the online folks are live now. I don't know who's there, but we're on. So hopefully they're, they're there. So we're on. Let's go. Patty will talk with them. Patty's set up to be here with the communicator with the online folks. What the online folks are missing, of course, is all the cookies that people brought in the back of the room. Yay, we love the cookies. Thank you for that. And it's just really, it's just, I just want to say, it's just great to see all you guys. It really is. This is just super. And you'll see that the, the room down here has been all redone. It's all painted. The carpet's all new. The walls, I don't know how much we'll see of those, but the walls are all redone. We got a screen, we got a camera so we can do the online streaming, which is working now. Thank you, John. Give John a round of applause. Way to go, John. John, you better be back here next week, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, have a good lunch. <laughs> so, okay, well, this is great. So, um, I don't really have much of the way of business or anything. There are, guess what? Two red boxes. You remember those from the old days? Two red boxes. I put them on a couple different tables. Just keep them moving. They are identical. And just check yourself off on the roster. Now, if you are not on the roster, what you need to do is to write your name and your email address on it for Connie and she will then add you to the roster, which has been unchanged. See, no, there's been no changes. It's like we went into suspended animation, yeah. right? Two years, one week and six days ago, we went into suspended animation. So the rosters are all exactly as we left them two years ago. Isn't that freaky? Yeah. Really, if you stop to think about it, wow. Tomorrow night, some, some, you know, some of the folks from my Sunday class are going to be at La Hacienda, which was also the last place we were together before the pandemic started. This is, this is all kind of eerie. So, anyway, for the online folks, you will, I don't know how much you can see of me and the slides and... Okay, right now. Okay, well... They don't need to see me much anyway, so there will be times when I, I just can't stand in one place. It's not possible. I can't do that. I'll move this here to remind me what the best position is, I guess. Okay, well, I can't deal with all that. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, okay, so this is awesome, and the online folks can at least hear me, and they can interact with the class via the comment section that we've all been using for the last two years, one week, and six days. 
Okay, and Patty will be here to be our interactress. It is cutting in and out. Well, yeah. Just be patient if you're online. Or come here next week if you can. If not, we'll just do best. I'm recording the podcast separately from the Facebook page. Um, just so... What do they call it? Belts and suspenders. So anyway, glad you all are here. We are in the Gospel of John, as the slide says. And um, for those of you who have been part of the class on Tuesdays, um, we've been in John for a long time because John is, John's Gospel is a, is a massive piece of writing. It's very theological. It's just not something, it's not something to hurry through. So we have been in it for a while and we are in the story of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And of course, following that, we will come to the stories of Jesus' resurrection. So it's perfect for the fact that we are now in Lent, right? And uh, so it's perfect in that way. So, yes, Patty? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, everybody, but this is, you know, we're working the bugs out. You're there, you keep breaking up, and there's no audio. So how do I get that John guy back? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, honey. I, I don't know. We'll just... We'll just have to do our best. I'll just have to report it all in later. Pat, Lauren's going to go find somebody to tell them that it's really working poorly. Because the difference, see, when I'm in home in my office, it's a different way to reach Facebook, and it works better, even though you have problems there too. So, what a world. You would think it would all just work right, but you know, it's pretty amazing that we can all gather in that online way anyway. So, I'm sorry if we are having troubles. But... We're here. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful to be back. Back here in Pira Hall. Back here together. Because this is a fellowship that you have formed. It is your spirit who has brought us here. We, um, Many of us have been together for a long time on Tuesdays. And we are grateful that we, that to, to, just, to just have this time each week that we come together to be together and to study your word and, and to devote this time to immersing ourselves in scripture. And we just pray as we always do that your spirit would encourage us and lift us up and open our hearts and our minds to you. And um, in this case, to John's telling of the good news. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I am not aware of anything else that we need to talk about besides um, scriptures. So what I'd like, where I'd like to begin is to go back a little bit to where we were last week just to keep the sections. Because in the, in, in, as in every other piece of writing there is, there are, there are sections, there are paragraphs, there are um, pieces of writing that belong together. So I want to start in verse 17. Oh, Scott. Yeah, let's back up. Chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 17. With the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 17. We read the opening um, few verses of that last week and talked about it a little bit, but hey, 
we got a lot of people here who weren't part of that, so we might as well keep each little section kind of, kind of whole. So, okay, I'm just going to check, check the podcast recording for one second. Okay, we're good. Back to the old ways. This is how I did it before the pandemic. It was a perfectly good way. By the way, for just of you, for those of you who are curious whether or not we listen to these podcasts, we are just about to reach 50,000 podcast downloads since we started them. In, and all they are is just the raw audio. The raw audio of, of the classes with nothing added. No, they can't. And I, I really... Ha- <laughs> Thank you, Patty. Okay. So look, look, at, look at the paragraph that begins at chapter 19, verse 17. So, so well, Jesus has been arrested. He has been tried before Caiaphas. He has been tried before Pilate. As we talked about, Pilate doesn't want to do what the Jewish leaders want him to do, and it's almost a matter of spite. He doesn't want to do it because they want him to do it. And he has had trouble with the Jewish leaders. There's been a lot of tension between, between them ever since Pilate arrived from Rome a few years before. So, um, but Pilate has handed Jesus over to be, to be crucified. Um, only the Romans have the authority and power to crucify. Um, Uh, We may talk about crucifixion a little bit more today. The key thing to realize is that it is the most barbaric, horrifying, humiliating way that the Romans had to put someone to death. And it was meant to be that because it was also done very, very publicly because it was meant to deter people from rising in rebellion against Rome. And there were, Romans didn't always use it. It wasn't the always used ways of dealing with people that Rome wanted to execute. But for rebels, those who were perceived as standing up to Rome, they sure did. So, Jesus has, has, been, has been flogged. And we begin in verse 17. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself because he can only carry the cross piece. He can't, it's, it's, the, the whole thing is too heavy. And probably what, the way it's set up is that the vertical pieces that the Romans have, the vertical bars, are there all the time. They're like a permanent installation. And, and, then, the, and then the cross piece is placed on top of it. Um, and so it's... It, it's just too, even the cross piece weighs, they estimate 200 pounds, 250 pounds. They're heavy. As you know, Jesus couldn't carry it all the way, right? He's, he's too weak and it's too heavy. But he begins by carrying the cross by himself and he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. So I want to go back to last week for a minute. Um, look at this map. This is a map, if you can see the screen, I hope you can. If you can't, you may have a map like this in the back of your Bibles. Um, The red arrow is pointing towards Herod's palace. Okay, Um, and the circle is is over the place of Golgotha, 
What you can see perhaps in the map is that Golgotha is outside the principal city walls. This will be clear in just a minute. Um, uh, this is a model of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. The bottom arrow at the bottom of the screen is pointing toward Herod's palace, the very corner of Herod's palace. That's where Pilate has been. He's the Roman governor. He wants to stay in nice digs. He wants a bathroom all to himself and all that kind of thing. So he stays in Herod's palace. Up here, this top arrow is pointing toward Antonio's fortress. That is, that is where the Roman soldiers are. That's their barracks up there. And it's up there because that way they can easily keep an eye on the powder keg, which is the Temple Mount at Passover. There were many, many problems at, um, on the Temple Mount at Passover. And this bottom circle on the model properly shows the place of Golgotha. It, it's, it's the most sensible place for Romans to use for this because it's very public. It's right at these crossroads. See the crossroads coming out and moving across the city? It's very visible. Um, it was part of a large quarry area where stone was harvested to use to build the Temple Mount the big, massive temple foundation stones, leaving an area that would be depressed, <laughs> depressed and collect water, um, could be garden-like, as we'll see, that's not surprising, and um, also a place that would have a lot of limestone caves, because limestone is a very porous. And so a lot of places where it make it relatively easy to construct a tomb, which I, I'll, I have some slides about in a bit as well. Okay, so I'm going to leave that slide up here for a minute. Any questions about that? See, I can ask questions now in the old-fashioned way. Yeah, Charlotte. Like whose cross would he have carried? Oh, well, you know, here, here's the thing about these accounts, okay? These accounts come from 2,000 years ago, and each writer is giving you the best account that they can, right? Things that they might have seen themselves, um, perhaps John probably did, things that they were told, and what the accounts don't do is differ on really big things. But on little things, sure, just it, it's really... It's really no different, I don't think, than if you go to a, you know, if you're working a company and you go to a meeting of, of a half a dozen people and you meet for two hours, and if you went around and interviewed each person, you asked them what happened in the meeting, do you think it would be a unanimous <laughs> agreement about what happened? Probably not. It's just, and, and so that's what we have. But this is, this is all God-breathed and John's, in my view, recollection, because I think this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In his recollection, recollection Jesus began with, began carrying it. I don't think the other Gospels are as explicit about whether he began carrying it or not. Okay, but we're not. We need to. It's it's tempting to take all the Gospels and kind of weave them together, thinking, well, if I take them and I weave them all together, then I can end up with actually the the best account. No. These are four 
complementary portraits of Jesus. And we need to give the gospel writer the freedom to tell the story the way that they, that they wish to. And of course, they all tell the good news of Jesus Christ. They all tell the story of Jesus' faithfulness, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And if the details are a little bit confusing to us, that's life. That is life, my friends. So, they took Jesus, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. That is the encircled area outside the city walls. By the way, if you've been to Jerusalem, whoa, it's not there. <laughs> what? Oh, my gosh. <sighs> okay. Never mind. That, that, those are the most important slides I had today anyway. So, so that, that's, that area with the circle on it is Golgotha. It is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. Ah, that's all that spot. Um, there's, a, there's a church nearby, a Christian church nearby, that has a model of that area showing basically the same, the same thing. And... Um, it, it shows the church, the Holy Sepulchre right on that spot. Okay, so that's, that's the spot. Okay, so there at Golgotha, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. So they probably have three uprights, maybe more, but every painting ever see has three. They have no way of knowing whether there were actually more. Nobody tells us. And on either side are two men who are probably seen by the Roman as rebels. That's even, they're not thieves. The, the word that's used in scripture is a word that has a more of a connotation of rebels against Rome because that's what the Romans wanted to prevent, was rebellion, right? So Pilate, verse 19, also had an inscription written and put on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Okay? Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. So, the irony, of course, is that he calls Jesus the king of the Jews in a mocking way. That's what the inscription is meant to be. It's meant to mock him. But, of course, it doesn't mock him because it is the truth. It's written in Aramaic, the local street language that everybody spoke, Hebrew, the language of the educated in, 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 in Palestine and elsewhere, and in Greek, everybody's second language. And there you get this universal idea about, about who, who's Christ, right? And who has he come for? It's not just the Jews. And the Greek inscription even conveys that idea. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Well, don't write King of the Jews, but this. But I want you to write this. This man said, I am the King of the Jews. By now, Pilate is so sick of the priests, 
so sick of them. They keep pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. He knows, he knows he can't let Rome find out that he let some supposed rebel go. Pilate just can't do that. He's there to keep the peace, collect the taxes, and to deal with prospective rebels, as there were some in Jesus' day, right? So the, the priests say, you know, don't write the king of the Jews, but this man's, but write instead, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. On this, he's not going to budge. <laughs> After everything else, on this, he's not going to budge. What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothing and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now that you, there, the tunic is the is is the piece of clothing that's closest to your body. Okay, it's like a big undershirt or or nightgown kind of thing. And here John has a has has quite a moment because he tells us that the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. Hmm. Why did John share that with us? You know, it's a really good question. He must mean something by it, because John, John's gospel is very, he uses a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of sort of embedded theology in it that John is trying to convey, in which John is trying to convey who Jesus is. Oh, we're back. Well, yeah. Okay. Okay, there we go. I don't know why mine disconnected. Down here. Do you, do you understand it? Okay, awesome. I'm going to hold you to that then. Okay. It's youth. It's youth, I know. It's youth. She has to keep showing me how to use my phone. So. <laughs> what? And I am so grateful. Okay, so um, most think that John's point is that he's, he's talking about this, the, unity, the unity of this tunic from top to bottom because Jesus came from above, and in the Greek that's actually the, the word, is, is, a, is the same word, the anathen, the, from above. And it's talking about Jesus having come from above and the unity of Jesus and the church. Because John is writing 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So he has seen a lot. And he takes this moment to, to, in this symbolic way, to talk about the unity of the one who came from above with the church, which is given the um, mission by Christ. Verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it. The Roman soldiers say to each other, there's probably four of them, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. Because everything in their world that was useful had value. It's not a world that produced lots of things. Soldiers, you know, were not but making the big bucks um, or anything. And so, of course, they can... Um, 
they would just as soon be able to keep these garments for themselves. But there is a theological point to be made. This was to fulfill, John writes, what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And there are four occasions in the course of Jesus' crucifixion that John highlights as fulfillments of scripture. So let's go ahead and, and put a little scrap of paper there and turn to Psalm 22. Don't you? Okay, turn, find, turn. Yeah. Okay, Psalm 22. Okay. Everybody's familiar with Psalm 23, right? Correct? The most beloved Psalm of all. Nestled right next to it is Psalm 22. What are the most famous words that Jesus says when he's on the cross? In my estimation. The ones, the ones I think most people would repeat back to me in some form. Why, oh why, have you forsaken me? Right? And we kind of think Jesus is just inventing those words. He's just creating that moment. He's not. He's, he's quoting Psalm 22, which begins, if you're with me there at Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. And look at verse 18 in Psalm 22. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, when the New Testament writers use scripture this way, I don't you really shouldn't imagine that all the Jews see all these little verse pieces as signposts to the Messiah. Some of them are, and we could talk about them, but but the gospel writers realize after Jesus' death and resurrection that he was the fulfillment of all kinds of signposts from the Old Testament. Okay? Um, and, and they use, they use, John does, to use this Psalm 22 connection to help us see that Jesus is the fulfillment of what of what came before and that was a standard theme of Jesus's right that you know he's the fulfillment of scripture he is there's not really there's not really even other than the incarnation it's not even it's not it's not even innovative it's 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 what scripture pointed toward all along if you read it correctly which if you go back to John 3, that's the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. How can you not understand this? How can you not understand this? You should be able to understand this. He doesn't, but you should be able to because all the signposts are there. But the Jews just, did, just didn't read them that way and they didn't see them that way. And so John 
a little bit like Matthew, right here. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. These things that happen are the fulfillment of Scripture. We can find these links. We can find. We can connect dots. <laughs> we can connect dots. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, so I'm being asked um, by a class member, Don, if he, he a few years ago he met a young man who had memorized um, the Quran. It's not unusual, and I'll talk for a second about why that is and the difference between the Quran and the Bible and how they function in the two religions. Um, so. The question is, did Jesus memorize all of the Hebrew Scripture? Perhaps. Um, perhaps so, perhaps not. The difference is, for the Jews and, the, and, and, and particularly for the Christians, I would just say particularly for the Christians, the presence of God is embodied in what or in whom? Bodily embodied in Jesus, right? For the Muslims, God is embodied in the Quran, which takes it to a whole nother level, which is why they won't even destroy copies of it. For us, it would be like saying, yeah, we're going to destroy Jesus's body. So Quran, the Quran operates differently in um, Islam than scripture does in Christianity and, and really even in Judaism. So might Jesus have memorized it? All perhaps, but everybody knew it. It was what it was was what they grew up reading and knowing. So when Jesus is on the cross and says, "Why, oh why, have you forsaken me?" All the Jews gathered there. They would all know it was Psalm 22. I don't know. I don't think they would have called it Psalm 22. I think that's that's a later that's a later edition. But but yeah, they would have said, "There is that Psalm. There is that Psalm, which is found today." in the Hebrew Bible just as it is in your Old Testament since your Old Testament in terms of content is identical to the Hebrew Bible. So yeah, might have. But they even, even, even if not memorized, known inside and out. Fortunately, I stuck my own piece of paper. I'd be having it in the Bible. I have to find my way back to John 19. Okay. And any follow-ups to that? Just one, if, if uh, Jesus is God, then wouldn't God know the Bible inside and out, backwards and forwards? Well, sure. God knows everything. The question is, does Jesus walk around every day with the mind of God encompassed in the three-pound human brain? You know, I think probably not. And I think that's what Paul is getting at to some degree in Philippians when he says that Jesus, that God emptied himself. Because because Jesus has to be able to live amongst people. Did somebody have to teach Jesus to read? Or was he reading? Did they have to teach him how to do some basic arithmetic? Yeah. Did Jesus know about subatomic particles? I'm I'm guessing not. That that see, uh, for me, and I think for many, I think for most, that when you begin to ask those questions. If you say, well, he knew all of that stuff. He knew about germs. He knew about subatomic particles. Because he's God, he knows everything. 
you're, what, you, what I think we're doing is diminishing his humanity. And we can't do that. We can't, it's tempting, always tempting to diminish his humanity, to solve the problem, right? So we, 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 we can't do that. So I think somebody had to teach him how to read. Um, somebody had to teach him some numbers. But you see, when they teach him how to read and he comes with the scriptures, what do the rabbis find? This depth of understanding that no 12 or 13 year old boy should have. Where does that depth of understanding come from? Jesus' identity with God. You see, the two of them are linked. He, he is God, but there's so much mystery in how all of that works that we make more mistakes, I think, about it than we get right. Okay, so. Verse 25. And that is what the soldiers did. They cast lots, rolled the dice. Very, very common practice. That, that's how the replacement disciple for Judas Iscariot is made, is found in Acts 1. They roll, they roll, they cast the lots in Acts 1. Why do they cast the lots in Acts 1? Rolling the dice is what it is. To replace, to decide who's going to replace Judas Iscariot among the twelve. Because they believe that God was the first cause of all things and God would make sure the dice came out right in God's mind in accordance with whatever God wanted. It was just the ancient people's understanding of the world around them. They had almost nothing in the way of other explanations for what happened to them. So, okay? Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, Jesus has been crucified. You notice how little John tells us about that. You know, I, I think it had to be hard for him to write, to contemplate this, very difficult. And he quickly moves to the relationships around the cross. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, unnamed, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. First time she's named in John's Gospel. Uh, Mary Magdalene is much talked about, books written. Poor woman has been abused and used for much of the last 2,000 years. She was a follower of Jesus who was deeply troubled, but came to Jesus, became a disciple, um, not one of the 12, but a disciple, and probably helped to fund um, the ministry. She's from a, a town called, it was called Magdala at the time, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, called Migdal today. And you can also look at these lines and realize that these places are filled with Marys. Mary is the most popular name by far, and it gets so confusing. It's why Pope Gregory ended up confusing who Mary Magdalene was with other Marys and unnamed women and screwed it all up in about 600 AD. And um, people just didn't need a lot. They didn't need lots of names. They hardly ever left their village, never went very far. Jesus of Nazareth was probably enough for most everybody's purposes. If you needed more, he would be Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, and that would seal the deal. Everybody wouldn't know who you're talking about, as opposed to having, you know, Scott 
L. Engel, Scott Lawrence Engel, that's my name, Scott Lawrence Engel, right, and perhaps social security numbers and other things to identify me in our big, full, populated, complex society. Theirs was not. So Mary was a popular name. Jesus was a popular name. Yeshua, it was. Very popular name. John, po these were popular names. So you keep, there are so few names used in the Gospels because the people didn't need lots of different Lots of different names. So there are four women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that person again, we meet in this gospel over and over, the disciple whom he loved, the beloved disciple. I am certainly with those who believe that this is John, the son of Zebedee. Zebedee has two sons. You meet early on in the Gospels. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And, and most think that this is that John and the writer of the Gospel. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Now, him calling her woman strikes you as odd. You mothers who have children probably don't want your sons or daughters addressing you as woman. Am I correct about that? Susan's nodding her head. Yes. Doesn't need that. No. No. For these people, it's not rude. It's, it's a bit unusual, but it's not rude. Okay? And you get the clue about that because Jesus is calling his mother in this manner when he's hanging on this cross and she's standing right there very near him because as I explained last week the crosses aren't tall he's not like way up off the ground he's that or no his feet might be a couple of feet off the ground they're they're not they're not he's not way up there it's too much work too much trouble so they were plus it, it makes it more removed when what the Romans want is for people to see the horror of it up close. That's why they crucified people naked. It's why dogs would sometimes eat it at uh, the feet of people who were being crucified. Whatever could be done to make it more horrible and more humiliating, that's what the Romans did. So, so Mary is not, is, the soldiers are probably keeping a little bit of distance between um, the people and Jesus, but it's not, it's not a lot of distance. And he says to her, woman, so you know that it's, it's, it's not rude. Woman, here is your son, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Um, Jesus, being the eldest son in the family, had a responsibility to ensure that his mother was taken care of. And what did he know? He knew that his brothers were not, they were not into this Jesus thing. They were not followers of Jesus during Jesus' ministry. That would come later. But, but right now, no. So Jesus entrusts his mother to this young disciple named John. And he is young. He's probably a teenager. 
Um, and in, in the ancient world, a world devoid of anything like social security net, nets and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, women were, were entrusted to, to men, basically. It's why if a woman's husband died, she was supposed to be taken in by his brother. It was just a way to avoid creating widows. Um, because widows were the most marginalized people in the ancient world alongside, alongside orphans. So here, but Jesus of course knows that he's entrusting his mother to young John and he's entrusting John to his mother. And the um, tradition around this is that the two of them stayed together and eventually, after some number of years, made, them sail, made their way to Ephesus, and, which is in western Turkey. If my computer were working, I have a map and a pictures for you, but it's not, so you don't get them. So Ephesus in western Turkey, and on a hillside outside Ephesus, there's a stone house called Mary's House, that by tradition, by tradition, just tradition alone, is remembered as the house that Mary lived in. And I remember the first time we went there was in 2007. And we, um, we, we uh, had communion at a table outside. It was just a really a lovely, calm place. Um, it is a place the popes visit because it's an important place in the Mariology, I guess, of the Roman Catholic Church. But it's up on this hillside and the tradition is very nice. Lauren's working it over there, I can tell. Okay, yeah, that's very much like the picture I, I had. Um, yeah, Lauren, write that down. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's a very modest little stone house. You know, it's really not anything to, to pass through. It's really, like, it's really like all the surroundings around it, right? It's just lovely and I'll tell you I didn't expect it to be but it was very meaningful to take communion at Mary's house. I'm a Protestant. I don't spend my time thinking much about Mary. <coughs> Maybe I should spend more time thinking about Mary. I think sometimes we Protestants ignore Mary when, to our detriment. Yes Charlotte? Probably so, because you notice that you have Joseph early in the story of Jesus, but then he disappears, and when Jesus begins his ministry, there's nary a word about him. So what's the simplest explanation that he disappears? Is that he died. How common was death in that world? Very. No, I think if, 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 if Joseph had still been alive, then Mary and Joseph would have remained together, but when Jesus is going to die, his brothers are not his followers. He is the eldest son, takes it upon himself to entrust Mary to a member of the family. Now, so let's talk about this for a second. As Jesus is on the cross thinking about his family, whom is he thinking about? His blood kin? No. Not thinking about his brothers and sisters. No, he is entrusting his mother to a member of the family, and that's the family of disciples. That's the family of believers. That's the body of Christ. You see? 
Um, I joke with Tom Beal on my Sunday class all the time because, you know, we, we sometimes will call each other Brother Scott and Brother Tom. You know, I grew up Episcopalian, so that's like freaky. But, <laughs> you know, the more time I've spent in the New Testament, the more I've seen, yeah, it's kind of nice because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of one family in Christ. And, and we need to grasp that and understand it. And it is what makes us not a club or a nonprofit organization or a business or whatever terms you might want to apply to a church. Um, the proper way to think about a church is as a family. That's something I learned from Robert Hasley, that it's tempting to run a church as a business. Big mistake. This is a family. The problems we have are family problems. We need to think about things in a family way, not, not as, you know, Frito-Lay might. It's not, we're not the same. We're not the JCs. We're not, we're a family. And that presents issues. Some of you have families in which everybody doesn't get along. Is that true? I bet that's true. When I was a young person, I thought it was only our family that was had such problems. And I got older and I realized, nah, they're all there. You just got to go out maybe one, one layer in the family and they're there. So sure. So he entrusts Mary to John and John to Mary. So, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. So look, look at Psalm. We're going to run these down. Why not? We're together. We got Bibles. We're going to we're going to use them. We're going to exercise them. Look at find Psalm sixty nine. This is a Bible study after all, right? <laughs> <laughs> Psalm 69. 69. It's okay. This is one of David's psalms, a psalm for deliverance from persecution. Boy, that sounds like something Jesus would be interested in. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Okay? Because that's what's going to happen. They're going to give him, they're not going to give him the water. You know, when Jesus um, uh, says, I am thirsty, the normal response would be to give him water, wouldn't it? Really? You know, I've heard different explanations of that. Um, and of course, Jesus has talked with the Samaritan woman about the living water, and I think John wants us to make all those connections. And so when Jesus says, I am thirsty, a jar, look at verse 29 back. I'll just read it to you as you make your way back to John 19. A jar full of sour wine was there. That's the vinegar thing. So let me explain what this drink probably is while you're getting your way back to John 19. It's probably a drink called, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I'm going to pronounce it Posca, P-O-S-C-A. It was a cheap drink um, 
used by the common Roman soldiers. It would keep. I think if you drank enough of it, you might be able to get drunk on it. It's called Pascha, and and that's what that's what they give to Jesus. So it's 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 not the water which you might hope it would be, but it's not an insult or something really to give them this. It's something that the Roman soldiers themselves drank, and it's there and it's available, and so they're going to give them something to drink. And it's again one of those little signposts, one of those one of a myriad of little little scripture fulfillments, right? Yes, sir. Closer to vinegar, like wine gone bad. Okay, so it's a type of wine. It, yeah, yeah. I think wine kind of turns into vinegar or something, right? If you leave it out. It's happened to me before, I will say. <laughs> sure, I'm not sure this is good, Patty. Will you try it? <laughs> Tell me what you think. It, can, it happens with milk. It can also happen with wine. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's, again, it, it's, it's not our world. It's their world. And the Roman soldiers drank whatever wouldn't kill them, basically. Sure, of course. People ate whatever wouldn't kill them. They ate stuff you and I wouldn't eat, I'll tell you. So here's what they do. Look at back at verse 29 in, chapter, in ni chapter 19 of John. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. Now that always draws discussion because hyssop is a bush. It's a bush. It's not, it's not a tree. You don't have sturdy branches of hyssop. So was it really hyssop? Probably not. It's probably not strong enough to, to, to lift a liquid-laden sponge up to Jesus' mouth. But you see, hyssop was used in the purification rites of the Jews. Right? In the purification rites of the Jews. And, 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 and that's, that's what's happening here, right? Um, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the purifier. Jesus is the one who reconciles us with God. Jesus is the one who purifies us. So using hyssop in the midst of this, or speaking of the bush as hyssop, even though it might botanically not be hyssop, is incredibly sensible. And so they take the, they, they, the, the, they take the sponge and they put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had finished the wine, such as he could get off the sponge, he said, it is finished. Remember all the times in John's Gospel from the beginning. Go all the way back to John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. When mom comes to him and says, okay, okay, we are running out of wine. You need to do something. And he looks at her, what does he say? My hour has not, yet, has not yet come. And so all the way through John's gospel, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, until it is about to come, and now it has come. And his vocation to be faithful to God all the way to death, even death on the cross, has been accomplished. And I'm often asked several things. Did he know what was coming? I think yes. Did one have to have supernatural understandings to grasp what was coming? No. When he rides into 
Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as Messiah with every symbol of kingship packed around himself. That's what Palm Sunday is. Every symbol of kingship, every symbol of messiahship is packed around Jesus. As we might put it, the die is cast. He knows. He knows. Rome will not tolerate rebel kings. Period, paragraph, end of story. The only way for this, for Jesus to survive this is to run away or, or change his message or change his ministry or say, no, I'm not really the king of the Jews, to somehow be faithless to God. But he doesn't. He is faithful to God. When he is confronted between Palm Sunday and Easter by the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes and the Sadducees, does he run away? Does he back away from... No, he doesn't back away from the confrontations. He calls them, but he looks them in the eyes. He's telling the parable of the wicked tenants. And he basically says to them, you are the wicked tenants. You killed God's prophets and now you're going to kill God's son. That's what the parable of the wicked tenants are. They all know who the wicked tenants are in that parable. The, the priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the rest do. Sure they do. They understand. And Jesus is going to die for it. And the only way that's is going to be avoided is if he ran away into the Judean wilderness and never looked back. But that, would, that might be what a lot of people would do. But it can't be what Jesus does. He stays faithful all the way to death even death on a cross. People have asked me just recently, did it have to be a cross? Well, in the sense that that is how Romans put to death rebels against Rome, kings of the Jews or kings of anybody else, then yes, it was going to be a Roman cross. Jesus would know it wasn't going to be a Roman cross. When Jesus was 10, Josephus, the historian, tells us a couple of thousand Jews were, were crucified along the roadways of Galilee to put down a rebellion. Jesus knew all about it, but he went. As Paul writes, he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. He was going to be that one faithful Jew who would love God and love neighbor every day and in every way. It's a phrase I use over and over and over and over again because it is... It's just, I, I think it's just a, so many misunderstandings of what, is, of, of what is happening here. It, 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 it isn't an arbitrary thing where simply, simply somebody must die. And it's going to be Jesus. He simply must die. Somebody's going to die. It's going to be, no, he dies because he's faithful to God. He didn't have to die. And it is that faithfulness that allowed him to be the Jew who kept the law of Moses and all that allow all the blessings of God to come pouring out on God's people and hence on the world. And hence on the world. So um, when, when you, that's why I spend time with the details of this, these stories so, so, so that you understand what's happening and you understand who the Romans are and you don't think to yourself, oh, oh, Pilate's just so concerned about an innocent man, you know, that's why he doesn't want to do it. It's the taking of an innocent life. Well, this is a world in which people went to Colosseums to watch humans get eaten by animals. 
It's estimated that in the first 90 days of the opening games of the Colosseum in Rome, yeehaw, they got it built. In the first 90 days, you know how many people were killed on the arena floor? 10,000 people. Pilate doesn't give a flip about an innocent life. He just doesn't want to do what the priests want him to do. And if, it, if he grasps something about Jesus and it haunts him, well, that's a good thing, because it should. It should. It should haunt him. And now Jesus, it says, you know, he's, he's been flogged, beaten. Um, as I said last week, when we were online only, that the floggings varied in their intensity. It's clear um, in the story of Jesus that his flogging was brutal. Most, most people don't die on the cross in a few hours. That's not what they really wanted to do. The Romans wanted to drag it out. They would leave people on the cross for days for days and just let them die very, very, very slowly. You know, you know how people died of, cruci of crucifixion? It's probably not what you think if nobody's ever told you. Suffocation. Suffocation. They die of asphyxiation. The way it works was you have to be able to push your legs up to catch a breath and after a while you're so weak you can't do it anymore and you suffocate to death. Oh my gosh. It's but it might be after days up there, days. Is that why they broke their legs? So they couldn't push the, the breaking of the legs was an act of mercy. Because when you broke the legs, it, it, enabled, it prevented the person from pushing themselves up, but it, which meant that they wouldn't have to die in agony over the next six days. Does that make, you see? It's kind of a sick way of thinking of an act of mercy, but it would speed things along. But the Romans didn't generally want things sped along. They didn't want things, again, it's a pub, it's like, I used the word last week for the first time, it was like a billboard. Here's what happens to those who stand up to Rome, right? Okay, so Jesus, in verse 30, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it's finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which means he died. Okay. At one time, there were scholars who, would, who didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection and all this other stuff, and they would suggest that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of swooned. He passed out and was mistaken. It was, he was mistaken for dead when he wasn't really dead. Hmm. The ancient world didn't have as sophisticated a way of understanding death as we do, and the same medical tools as we do, but read on, you'll find out why that was always a silly position to hold. And nobody does anymore. No, but no New Testament scholar, believer or not, that I know of would tell you, well, I really think that Jesus just swooned on the cross. He didn't really die. Okay. Any other questions before we go on with the horror of all of this? And it is a horror. You know, I just thought of, of Paul. In one of his letters, he says, he says, you know, as to, to, to this church, I think it's Corinth, not sure. He says, you know, you were bought with a price. 
You were bought with the price. As in remember, remember, you were bought with the price. Now what are we reading about here? We're reading about that price. And this price is much worse than just death. This is the worst, worst death that the brutal Roman Empire had to inflict on somebody. Yes. Well, let's talk about that when we get there. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. Now, the Jews were able to extract from the Romans concessions about various topics because the Jews were very difficult for the Romans to manage. Okay? And so they reached various agreements with the Romans about what the Romans would and wouldn't do. One of the things that got Pilate in trouble back in Rome was the fact that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he broke some of those agreements. And he brought the Roman, we'll call them the Roman flags, the Roman standards, inside the city walls of Jerusalem. No, he was not supposed to do that. And he got called back to Rome on that. Look, your job is to keep the peace, not to go there and trigger a rebellion. These Jews, they're difficult. They were. They, they were difficult. And so here, because, you know, for the Jews, when a person died, their touching that body would make somebody ritualistically unclean. So, so they didn't want to touch dead bodies. Um, they didn't want to see bodies disrespected, okay? Um, the handling of dead bodies was left to the women because the men wouldn't do it, right? That's the reason why the priest and the Levite passed by the guy beaten up on the roadside in the parable of the Good Samaritan because they don't want to touch him just in case he's dead and then they might have to deal with this, all the consequences of that, you know, in addition perhaps being hard-hearted. So, um, the, the Jewish leaders um, don't want bodies left on the cross on the Sabbath, and this is a Friday afternoon. <coughs> Especially because the Sabbath, John writes, was a day of great solemnity. Well, yes, it was. It's important. Still is among the Jews. They have Sabbath elevators in Israel that on the Sabbath, Remember that. Stops at every single floor. It was like it was like the little kid was gone in and pushed all the buttons because they can't push a button in the elevator on, on Saturday. So anyway, so they, these are the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed because when they break the legs, then the, then the crucified person can't breathe and they pretty soon asphyxiate. Okay? The soldiers came, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. The other had been crucified with him, the two of them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So the first question is, does the, Roman, does the Roman execution squad have certain skills with knowing when somebody's dead or not? 
chances are yes. They live their whole lives around death. The Roman soldiers are they they enter they enter the Roman legions and there they stay until they finish up as veterans. It's you know, and and go off and try to make a new life for themselves. They are well acquainted with death. So when they come to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they're not going to be wrong. They don't bother to break his legs. Instead, to double check, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Um, so, Charlotte, to your question, would that always be done? No. It's done because Jesus expires so quickly on the cross that they don't have to bother breaking his legs, but they want to be sure. Why do they want to be sure? Because it's their job. They can't go back and, 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 and have somebody think that as they didn't know what they were doing or they messed up or something, so they put a spear in his side. There was an article in the American Medical Association in 1987, the Journal of, in 1987 about the crucifixion and the doctors who wrote the article said this, even having, saying that blood would come out first followed by this liquid, water after, is correct. And they went through all the technical parts and you can find it on the internet if you would like. It's all very technical. It's not technical there that day, is it? So they pierce, they stab, they stab Jesus' dead body with a spear to make sure he's dead. So is he dead? Not a trick question. Is he dead? Yes. He's dead, dead, and dead. <laughs> I've missed you guys. <laughs> Verse 35. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony, I think it, he could have written my testimony, is true. And he knows that he tells the truth. John was there. John was there. He's telling you what happened. He's telling you what he thinks matters the most. Does he tell you all the little details you might get in the synoptics? No. Is it his job to be some cub reporter out there taking down every detail and writing it? No. He loved this man, but he wants you to understand the price, the cost, of the good news that, as Bonhoeffer put it, grace is free, but it's not cheap. <coughs> and then John writes, and we'll close up with this today, these things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled, none of his bones shall be broken. Most think that what John has in mind there is the story of the Passover lamb and the Exodus. We won't, we won't look it up. Exodus 12, where um, the, the lamb's bones are not broken. So, of course, the Passover lamb, Jesus, Exodus, New Exodus, that is a well-addressed signpost to Christ, isn't it? And verse 37, and so John writes, there's another, there's another scriptural fulfillment, which is this, this verse 37 is the fourth. And again, another passage of Scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced, 
And that comes from the prophet Zechariah. So to, to get to Don's point, I mean, the writers of the New Testament know these Hebrew scriptures inside and out. Now, there's, there's one trick you should know. They don't, they didn't, they don't read the Hebrew scrolls. They don't quote from the Hebrew scrolls. What they quote from is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scrolls that was made about 200 years before Jesus. And the reason that they read from the Greek translation of the Hebrew scrolls is that ordinary people didn't know how to read Hebrew. Their everyday language is not Hebrew in Jesus' day. It's Aramaic, a related language, but it's not Hebrew. It's like trying to get me to speak Spanish. Spanish and English are related. They ain't the same, baby. I, I'm just telling you, I've tried it. <laughs> so, so sure. So, um, and, and that is why if you run down some of these places and you say to yourself, well, gosh, you know, that's a good bit different when I go to my Old Testament and find that passage. It's kind of different than what is in the New Testament. One, the New Testament writer is using the Septuagint, this Greek version of the Old, plus it's passing in and out of English once or twice along the way, so that changes up things. So just, just don't get uptight. A good study Bible or other resource will help point you to the places that the writers probably have in mind. Sometimes it's very clear. Um, which scripture passage the New Testament writer has in mind, and other times it's not. And people debate it and always will until Jesus comes back. So, friends, there we are. First day back in Pierrot Hall. Um, okay, Tech Squad, so I assume we never got online. Did, did you get anybody online? Yeah, you're online right now. So if I say to people, hey, they're online people, I'm glad you're there. Yeah. Hey, online people, I'm glad you're there. <laughs> awesome. Is, is that the camera? Both. Both. Oh, I'm freaking out over here. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I'm freaking out. Okay. Okay, this is awesome. It has been so great. And you know what we're going to do next Tuesday? We're going to do this again. Right back here. Yay. So we'll gather, you know, 11.45 or so. Come on, 11.30 if you want. Whatever, come back and visit. And um, so in the next week or two, we will be moving on to the resurrection of Jesus. We may even get there next week to the resurrection of Jesus, which will be wonderful. And then as I, I said, when we finish John's Gospel, which you can sort of see coming now because there's not a lot left in John's Gospel, we will move on to Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians. It's so filled with things that I want, that I want to teach about and I want to get a podcast made of it. And it's just, it's, it, it's one of my favorites and it will keep us in the New Testament because on Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock we're in Isaiah and we're going to be in Isaiah for a long time. That's a big book. That's a big scroll. So in any event, okay, I will pray us
out of here today because I know I'm a minute late. Okay, I sure will. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to have been able to gather today. And um, we do want to lift up Cora Marburger. She's in a fight with pancreatic cancer. We do want to lift up Robert Hasley. He's in a fight with pancreatic cancer, this terrible, terrible disease. And I know that there are many, many um, prayers on people's hearts. And we are blessed that your Holy Spirit will lift up to you the hearts, which the prayers which we give voice to and even those we do not. Um, for indeed you want us to come to you in prayer. You want us to be in this fellowship. Your desire for us is that we would realize that that the life you want for us, the life we, our hearts seek for ourselves, our, is a life grounded in our love for you and in our love for one another. In our love for one another. For we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.